All right, now let's let, let's let him share what God's put on his heart. So if you would stand and uh, hear this word from Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Because even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend without expecting in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thanks, Andrew, for that. I didn't feel worthy of it, but I really do count it a privilege that I've been able to be a pastoral resident here and that all of you, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> for choosing to invest in me and develop me as a leader. I guess the proof will be in the pudding, so if this sermon sucks, well, it's your fault. Uh, but really, thank you. It's, it's just an honor to, to be here and to open God's Word and be part of this church family. And as you know, as a church family, we've been working our way through the gospel according to Luke in this new series called Rediscovering Jesus. And for every Christian in your walk with Christ, you can begin over time to get a distorted or skewed view of who Jesus is, and sometimes without even realizing it, lose the real Jesus. And we all daily need to rediscover Jesus, the living Jesus, the biblical Jesus, because only that Jesus can really save and transform our lives. Uh, last week, we heard a, a powerful message from our ministry partner, Elam, about how the gospel is at work in the Arab-speaking world um, and it was, just, it was an amazing sermon. But if you had been at one of our four other campuses, you would have heard a sermon uh, on Luke chapter 6, the early verses of Luke chapter 6, about the community that Jesus was building. That, that sermon was called uh, A Jesus Community Part 1. And I'd recommend that you hop onto our website and, and choose your second favorite campus pastor, because uh, I know your favorite campus pastor is Andrew. And listen to one of their sermons, because this sermon really builds off that. That was called the Jesus Community uh, Part 1. And so I've given a lot of time and creative energy to what we should call this sermon. So I went with the Jesus Community Part 2. Um, and let me give you the biblical context of what we'll be doing. So starting in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, until verse 49, we have what's been called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, this is an extended sermon by Jesus uh, with many parallels to the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And in our series, we've devoted three messages to this Sermon on the Plain, all emphasizing the community that Jesus is building. You'll hear two of those, two and three here, and all three you can hear online if you go to our and listen to one of the other campuses' sermons. So, you're going to get part two today. So, we're going to look at uh, the, the foundation that Jesus is giving for His people. Jesus is building His church, a community, and here's the foundation. And without a foundation, it falls apart. And without this foundation, our church will fall apart. 
You know, at the beginning of this sermon series or this mini three-parter, Jesus really emphasizes the vertical relationship of how believers should understand their relationship to God. And now he's going to emphasize how we live that out as the people of God and to those outside the church. And so let me ask the question, how do those outside the church describe the church? Or to make it personal, how do your non-Christian friends describe the church? What do they say? Maybe you're here today and you're not even sure if you are a Christian or you'd consider yourself a non-Christian. How do you or your friends describe the church? Sadly, most non-Christians, when they describe the church, would describe it as judgmental, hypocritical, or unloving. In fact, in 2017, Barna conducted another study. How many studies did they do? Conducted another study and asked people in America if they identify with the statement, I love Jesus, but not the church. And they found that roughly one-tenth of Americans identify with that statement, that I love Jesus, but not the church. And get this, the numbers actually increase once you get into the areas of America of the South and the Midwest, which is right where we're at. Even though, <laughs> even though there's some, whoops, want to hang on to those, should have stapled it, lesson learned. Um, <laughs> even though there's some problems theologically with the statement, I love Jesus but not the church, you really can't love Jesus <laughs> without loving His church, it should still get us and make us curious why people think or feel that. And I suspect that for most people who identify with that statement, they had a bad experience with a particular church, a church that probably was unloving or hypocritical or judgmental. So what should the church be like? What is Jesus calling us to be. And he left us with no illusions about that in Luke 6. He, he makes it plain the kind of community he wants to build. He tells us how he wants us to behave as his people. So let's turn there. Uh, Luke chapter 6, we'll start in verse 27. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. But before we dive into God's Word, let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity that it is to look at your Word, to hear from you. God, give us grace to hear what you're saying Help us be the kinds of people you're describing here. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, I think Jesus was a preacher at heart because he shares with us three things, <laughs> three things that he wants his community to be like. He wants his community to love widely, he wants them to give sacrificially, and he wants them to walk humbly. So first, Jesus, a Jesus community loves widely. And I see that starting in verse 27. Listen to how he says it again. But I say to you who hear... Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to the one who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And in only a few sentences, Jesus reiterates the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And even more challenging, he commands us to love our enemies. And so Jesus here, in a, in a few seconds, utters some of the most radical ethical commands that have ever been said. And so here's Jesus, our Lord, building his church, building his community, and he tells us, if you want to be part of this community, if you want to be part of my people, there's a few things you need to do. There's no membership fees, no secret handshake, no annual dues. If you want to be part of this community I'm building, 
You need to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and you need to love your enemies. That's a tall order. Jesus is making a ra- giving us radical requirements for what it means to be part of His community. And I can tell you right now that, that if the church did live like this, there probably would be less people who identify with this statement, I love Jesus, but not the church. But what does it really mean to love our enemies? Does that mean I let people abuse me and walk all over me? Well, in order to make sense of what Jesus is saying here, let me share a couple things to help us get handles on what He's saying. First, Jesus is a master teacher. He's giving us these short, pithy, even shocking statements to help us think and to help us remember what He's saying. He he wants us to remember. He wants to get us thinking and scratching our heads. But second, we should be careful that we don't absolutize any one thing we find here at the exclusion of other biblical commands and examples. You know, for example, if, if somebody were to come to me and ask for one of my children, am I just supposed to give them to them because Jesus told me to give to the one who asks? Or if the swindler down the street asks for your purse, do you just give that to them? Well, of course, the answer is no. In fact, Jesus models this himself. In Luke's gospel, there's a crowd of people that are impressed with what he's doing. He's casting out demons, teaching, and there's some people in the crowd who hate Jesus. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, give us a sign to prove to us who you are. And Jesus denies that request. And then maybe you recall the story of Mary and Martha. Martha's frantically trying to serve, and Martha goes, hey, Jesus, uh, can you help tell Mary to help me? And Jesus says, no, again, refusing somebody's request. So, is Jesus contradicting himself? No. You see, I I think Jesus is giving us this list of commands as a kind of heart diagnostic tool. He wants to reveal to us the condition of our heart. And I think that becomes really clear in verse 36, which we'll look at later. But for now, I want to address a question that some of you may have. I know I had it as I was studying this passage. Some of you may hear the command to love your enemies or to pray for those who abuse you, and inside you have a pit in your stomach. For some of us, those commands feel impossible or even dangerous to try to follow. Maybe you're experiencing abuse right now uh, at work from a coworker or a boss, or maybe you're living in a physically or emotionally abusive marriage. For some of you, the idea of an enemy or an abuser is a very real and very personal thing. And so, is Jesus just calling you to be a doormat? Is Jesus asking you to be BFFs with a person who's abused you or is abusing you? Is He calling you to live with somebody in an abusive situation because you're called to love your enemy? Friends, hear me emphatically say no. If you're living in a physically or an emotionally abusive situation, if you fear for your health and well-being, you can have every assurance that Jesus wants you out of that situation. And if that's you, please tell a trusted friend or a pastor or, or a counselor, we are here to help. We'd love to come alongside you in that. I know it takes a lot of courage to step out and share something like that, but please do so. So if that's not exactly what Jesus is telling us. What is He telling us to do? Well, I'm going to share three things that loving your enemy is not and three things that loving your enemy is. First, loving your enemy is not, does not mean you trust them. 
Loving your enemy does not mean you live with them. Loving your enemy does not mean that you're reconciled with them. Okay, if it doesn't mean those things, what does it mean? Well, loving your enemy does mean forgiving them. Loving your enemy does mean praying for them, and loving your enemy does mean doing good to them. And there's, there's so much we could say here about how to live this out. In fact, we have a number of great counselors that attend our church that could give you even more nuance around how to do this, but let me share just a couple things. First, Jesus really does call us to forgive our enemies. Over and over again, He makes this clear. In our passages, He says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. In the Lord's Prayer, He, he asks for forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. For if you forgive others' trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then Paul in Colossians 3 says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So yes, Jesus does call us to forgive. And we could sum all of this up by saying that a failure to show forgiveness is a failure to know forgiveness. If, if we can't forgive other people who've hurt us, if we refuse to extend forgiveness, we demonstrate the fact that we don't realize how much God has forgiven us. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 10, when he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. In other words, when we come to grips with the fact that God loved us when we were His enemy, then we'll begin to realize and then we'll begin to find the power to be able to love our enemies. I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. I'm not saying it even feels good. Forgiveness isn't even a one-time event. For any of us who've, who've really been hurt, you know that the feelings of unforgiveness can continue to pop up again and again, and we need to continually learn how to forgive. But not only that, if, if we choose instead to cling to our unforgiveness, if we choose to nurse bitterness and resentment towards those who've wronged us, our soul will rot away. You know, someone has said that, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And of course, the opposite of that, when, when we actually trust God for forgiveness, it brings freedom and rest. I love how uh, Lewis Smedes describes it. He says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner was you. But forgiveness doesn't mean we forget. We don't forgive and forget. The, the, the pain is real. The hurt is still real. When we're sinned against, a debt is incurred. And when we forgive a person, we cancel that debt. I love how Christian psychologist and counselor Dan Allender uh, describes forgiveness. He says, to forgive another means to cancel the debt of what is owed in order to provide a door of opportunity for repentance and restoration of the broken relationship. I love that. But second, know the difference between forgiveness on the one hand and reconciliation on the other. Those two are very different and distinct, and we need to know the difference. God calls us to forgive, and by His power, that is something that we're actually capable of doing is forgiving. But reconciliation, a restored relationship, is often out of our hands. When we forgive someone, it doesn't mean we automatically trust them. 
When we forgive someone who's hurt or abused us, we may also need to put boundaries in place. Forgiving an abuser doesn't mean you live with them, but it it doesn't even mean you have fond feelings towards them. But forgiveness is in your control. Forgiveness is something you can do. Reconciliation, a restored relationship on the other hand, can only happen when the person who's wronged us has demonstrated sincere repentance and sorrow over what they've done and has made a commitment not to do it again. Reconciliation depends on forgiveness, but forgiveness doesn't guarantee reconciliation. And even when when we pray and long for reconciliation, and then reconciliation does happen, often the new relationship won't be like what it was before. There's still emotional scar tissue. It's it's actually a long, drawn-out process, but one that God longs for. I know some of what I'm describing might sound like extreme cases, but they're not uncommon. And for a lot of us, luckily, I hope, we don't experience intense abuse or physical or emotional abuse. But for all of us, we still have the little enemies we're called to love. Listen again to to how Jesus describes some of these enemies. He says they hate us. He says they curse us. He says they take from us. And a lot of those descriptions could be applied to the person who cut us off in traffic or to the political party we disagree with or to the ethnic group or the immigrant we're afraid of. The so-called enemies for a lot of us are just the other person, the person who looks different than us, talks different, speaks different. That's a wide range of people. And that's exactly right, because Jesus calls us to love widely. So don't think you can get off the hook from this command. Who's that for you? Who are those little enemies in your life? And I hate to burst your bubble, but right now, people, as people think about who that is for them, some people are bringing your name to mind. For some people, you make life really difficult, and right now, they're asking God for the grace to love and forgive you. You see, we're all like this to some degree to other people. So Jesus calls us to forgive, but but to be part of Jesus' community means one other thing. Jesus, to be part of a Jesus community means that we would give sacrificially. And I see that starting in verse 33. Listen to how Jesus describes this. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to give back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And so Jesus is clear, if we want to be part of His community, we need to be a generous people. We're called to do good to others, lending to them, expecting nothing in return. You know, the opposite of this is is giving with strings attached. I'll give, and you have to do this thing now. Or giving and thinking, well, what's in this for me? I'll I'll only give if there's something in this for me. Or giving that says, well, I better know exactly where this is going and being used before I give. Uh Uh-uh, none of that. No, Jesus calls us to sacrificial generosity, expecting nothing in return. That's radical. That's hard to do. Where are we going to find the strength to do that? Why should we do that? Well, Jesus tells us. It's anchored in the character of God. He says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He tells us, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, when we grasp the fact 
that God has lavishly shown us generosity with His grace and love and forgiveness. When we see just how generous God has been towards us, then we'll find the ability to be generous to others. That's what Jesus tells us. He he says that if we're going to love our enemies, if we're going to give sacrificially, it comes out of the realization that we've been adopted into God's family. I think one of the things Jesus is getting at here is that if you've truly rediscovered Him, if you've truly encountered the living Jesus, you'll want to live this way. You'll you'll undergo a radical heart change where you'll want to be generous, where you'll want to be loving. You see, those people who live by God's forgiveness will imitate it. Those people who depend on God's generosity will replicate it. Those who know that their heavenly Father is merciful will long to be like Him and also be merciful. If you really encounter this God, you'll change. You'll become like Him, not totally, but incrementally. I love what Jesus even says in Acts 20, verse 35. He says, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when you get close to Jesus, when you become like Jesus, you'll begin to realize that and live that yourself. Does that describe you? Look, I'm not saying that we give a handout to everyone who asks, and Jesus isn't saying that either. We need to be wise in our giving. We need to avoid helping. That hurts. We need to be aware of when charity can become toxic. That's why as a church, we partner with amazing ministries and institutions like the Hope Center and Crystal Ray and Global Orphan Project and Care Portal Ministries that really are seeking to give generously to those in need, but doing it with wisdom in a way that truly does help those people in need. In fact, our our generosity should overflow first and foremost to those in need within the church. As a church, we have needs. As as a church body, there's need. Do you long to show that generosity to the church? That's what Jesus is really getting at. Do you long to be generous? Does your heart hurt for people in need? Or are you stingy with your giving? Do you have contempt for people in need because they probably should have worked harder? Does your heart break for those in need, and do you long to find ways to do that? You know, for the people of God, we're called to be generous with our time, talent, and treasure because our security in life ultimately isn't in those things, it's in God. And that frees us to be open-handed with our possessions. But there's one other thing that Jesus calls His community to do and it's humility. Humility. To, to be part of Jesus' community means that we'd walk humbly. And I see that starting in verse 37. Listen to how Jesus says this. He says, judge not and you'll not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. And then skipping down to verse 41. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your, that's in your eye. When you yourself don't see the log that's in your own eye, you hypocrites, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. Let me first say that Luke chapter 6 verse 37 is probably one of the most misapplied and misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. The verse says, judge not and you will not be judged. And so often what happens is Christians will be in the public square and take a stance on, a, on abortion or marriage or the sexual ethic, and usually somebody else will be, yeah, but Jesus said, don't judge. And usually what they mean by that is, see, Jesus said, you shouldn't make moral judgments, so how dare you make moral judgments? And the irony, of course, is that the statement, you shouldn't make moral judgments, is a moral judgment. 
and something that Jesus himself, both with his words and examples, contradicts. You know, Jesus can call the Pharisees in Matthew 3 a brood of vipers. That's a judgment. Jesus can tell the Pharisees in another place in John 8 that they're like their father, the devil. There's another judgment. In fact, you just heard it. He just calls these people who fail to recognize this hypocrites. There's another judgment. And that's really what Jesus is getting at. Listen to how verse 41 says it again. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? What Jesus is doing in these verses is he's condemning the sin of judgmentalism and hypocrisy. He confronts the people who don't see the log in their own eye and calls them hypocrites. You know, one pastor said that hypocrisy is more than a conscious self-excusing. It's also not seeing who we are because we don't want to see. We don't even want to think about it. And of course, the solution to hypocrisy is humility. You see, humble people are willing to acknowledge the log in their own eye. Humble people readily confess the ways they fail to live up to their own standards and to God's standards. And what Jesus is doing here is is He's not telling us to never make a moral judgment. No, instead He's showing us how to walk humbly while acknowledging our need for grace so that when we do make judgments, they're beneficial and helpful. And the image Jesus paints here is actually pretty funny. (laughs) It's the image of of one person with a tiny little speck in their eye and another person with a massive two-by-four sticking out, and they just can't seem to notice there's this thing waving around as they talk, but they feel the need to judge everybody else. And one of the things with this illustration is that Jesus says, the person who's a hypocrite, it's evident. You can as easily spot a hypocrite as easily as somebody with a beam in their eye. You see, a person's hypocrisy is evident to their wife, to their family, to their kids, to their community, to their church. The only person that the hypocrite fools is themselves. And nobody likes being around that person. You ever been around that person? You know, the plank in their eye is always waving around and bumping into people and knocking things over. Hypocrites are usually surprised when other people sin and have brokenness in their lives. The, the, The hypocrite can't seem to acknowledge that they have their own sin they need to own and take responsibility for. And what Jesus tells us here is that hypocrisy is like a cancer to his community. How about you? Do you find yourself regularly thinking about other people's faults? How do you respond when someone points out a fault in you? Do you get defensive? Do you make excuses for your behavior but fail to imagine legitimate excuses for other people's behavior? Before you point out something wrong in another person, do you readily acknowledge the own way, your own ways that you've sinned and fallen short? Can you right now bring to mind things this week where you've fallen short and need God's grace and forgiveness? If you can't, then you're probably like this hypocrite Jesus describes. You see, humble people, by contrast, acknowledge their need for forgiveness. And Jesus' point here is that the people most aware of their need for grace are the people best at giving it to others. You see, because humble people have seen God's grace reach down into the depths of their sin and forgive them, and so they have confidence that God's grace can also do that for another person. Christ's community, I long and I pray that we'd be a people like this, 
I pray that we'd be a people who, who gives generously and walks in humility and, and loves our enemies. And these are radical requirements to be, be part of Jesus' community. This is what we're called to. We're called to all of this. And yet Jesus Christ, the one building His church, the one forming us as His people, is both our example for how to do this and both gives us the power to truly do this. You see, did Jesus give sacrificially? You bet He did. You see, Jesus Christ in eternity past was in a perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, rich with glory, and He laid aside all of that. He emptied Himself of that and came to earth giving generously of Himself. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus gave generously. He gave the ultimate gift of Himself. Did Jesus walk humbly? You better believe He walked humbly. He was the most humble man that ever lived. And He, in His incarnation and becoming a man, gave us the most powerful example of humility ever. I love how Philippians 2 describes this. It says that Jesus, who existing in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And did Jesus love his enemies? You better believe he loved his enemies. Jesus didn't just get cursed at. Jesus wasn't just hated by his enemies. Jesus was killed and crucified by his enemies. Jesus didn't just feel the evil and sin of a few people. He felt the evil and sin of the whole world put on him. Jesus was the person most deserving of worship, love, honor, and respect, and he got the opposite and yet remained loving. And then we have Jesus at the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 23, hanging on the cross with blood dripping from his face, crying out to his God in heaven. And in the greatest act of enemy love ever, we have Jesus praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And friends, when we begin to realize that the them in Jesus' prayer is all of us, who've sinned against Him. When we, we, be, when we begin to grasp the fact that, that God loved us when we were enemies and rebels, then we'll find the power to give generously, then we'll find the power to walk humbly, and then, yes, then we'll begin to find the power little by little to even love our enemies. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word and the challenge it is. We pray, God, for the grace and strength to live this out. God, thank you that you give us the power and the example to do this. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.